1: Hey, welcome to the 252nd episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Dave Fairman, Emilio Torres, and Maddie Delk. I'm Matt Enlow,
0: And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we have on Fisher Stevens, who has just directed a new film called Palmer, starring Justin Timberlake, Juno Temple, June Squibb, it's coming out on Apple Plus tomorrow if you're listening to this. So Fisher Stevens, is, is he our first Oscar winner on the podcast? No, no. Um, Dean Pariseau is, a, is a, for a short film, but Fisher won for a feature film, produced The Cove documentary.
1: Yeah, Fisher, you might know him from a, a couple of different disciplines. He's an actor, he's a producer, and he's a director. And so you've seen him in stuff. Like since the 80s. He was in Friends for a a minute there. He's a regular on
0: Blacklist, The Blacklist, Succession, Vice Principals.
1: Yeah, pretty exciting. He's an accomplished actor, uh, but also, like you said, an Oscar winning producer and then also a feature film director. So he kind of, he's got his hands full. So he kind of bounces between the three of them. And we talk a little bit about what he looks for in his next project or when he's putting something together. Uh, What keeps him passionate about things? And also, you know, I think he's the first to say that this is a, a film, Palmer is a film that he really loves and adores, but he specifically kind of wanted to maintain a level of artistic control that meant that the budget was smaller and what the trade-offs between control versus time ended up being. And so it's a really fascinating, in-depth conversation. He's a super smart guy. We really dig in. He's really generous with his time, and we've got a lot of ground that we cover. So Palmer's out January 29th. It's probably already out on Apple TV by the time you're listening. So check it out uh, if you want to get even more context for what we're talking about with Fisher Stevens. But before
0: we talk to Fisher, I'm dying to know, Matt, what have you been working on lately? And do we have any iTunes reviews?
1: <laughs> you know, I, I, that's funny. The answer is the same for both. I've mostly been working on reading all of the iTunes reviews again. <laughs> Because when I get a little low, it's nice to hear your encouragement, everybody, and also your your criticism. Uh, so we've got one from Cal you know, Barnes Matt, that I go in there and I remove
0: all the negative reviews, right? Uh,
1: oh, 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 I thought you you go in and drag me. You create fake names and be like, <laughs> Orin's great, oh, yeah. but Matt leaves a little to be desired. Uh, I no. actually, all the reviews are by me. <laughs> I'm Glenn Montgomery, Greco <laughs> Bow, and Cal Barnes. Well, you you managed to change up your voice very uh, convincingly. So here we go. We'll we'll show your latest work from Cal Barnes. Great show that covers the process of filmmaking. This is a solid show in the Filmmaking Podcast Network. I've been listening to Orn and Matt's podcast along with a select handful of others as I've been directing my own first feature the last few years. Very informative. They cover a good array of topics, and some great discoveries have been made. In these wild times we're living in with an onslaught of over-information, it's great to have a few solid staples that deliver great content and episodes on a regular basis. Remember, when all else fails, just shoot it. It's a great call to action. Hey, thanks, Cal.
0: It is, yeah. Thanks, Cal. I love being a staple. A staple in the wound of your
1: (laughs) ego. No, no. We're just, just sealing a wound shut so that it can heal. Right. Yeah, we're like the um the liquid stitches of uh. You just got shot. Filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. we're the staple. Well, uh, before we we go through this uh, metaphor any longer, we just want to <laughs> say thanks. Thanks, Cal. We appreciate it. Uh, If you write an iTunes review, we will read it out loud. So feel free to plug, say, a feature that you're working on or anything else. Cal, thank you so much. But Oren, I'm actually curious. You're uh, the reason that you sound different today is because um, you're recording with AirPods because you're on a job. So I'm really curious to know what you have been working on lately.
0: Well, so I'm on a job. I'm in Columbus, Ohio. I flew here on an airplane wearing an N95 mask and a surgical mask. And my wife made me wear a face shield, which, not going to lie, I was like a little... And goggles. Well, the goggles, like, are kind of connected oh, to the face Oh, shield. I see. It's That's like nice. A, okay. It's like these glasses that hold the plastic. But they, did
1: they have lenses in front of them? They, I don't think... Oh, they, okay. They, they, so, it's no. just, like, frames. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that, actually. Those are more comfortable than the elastic band ones. I should get one of those, actually. Yeah.
0: But I had, like, a real N95. I hope this doesn't get me in trouble. I don't know if there's, like, a massive shortage or shortage or anything. It was like not the KN95, it was a real N95. I got it from a, a doctor friend. <laughs> my wife is pregnant and, um, you know, I have a kid and we're part of this. My kid is in the school where like everyone is just like very insulated and no one is supposed to bring any COVID <laughs> into the group. So my number one goal for this entire trip is to not get COVID. So I did that and then she made my dp also wear a face mask not because she was concerned about his safety but more so that i wouldn't feel like so like like the weirdo with the face mask and he was cool he wore it too but i was pleasantly surprised to see that there were like a bunch of other people not so much on the airplane but at the airport wearing face masks and stuff and i felt less weird i don't know
1: did you see anyone in coveralls like have i've seen photos of people like basically wearing a painter's suit
0: Oh, like fully insulated from COVID. Oh, and then they take it off when they're done. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know if I did, but people are pretty good. A few noses peeking out here and there. And of course, like as you leave California, like when we got to Ohio, like the, all the security guys outside the airport weren't wearing any masks, which I thought was pretty shocking. But, you know, and here at the hotel, like the bar is open and there's people sitting there and drinking drinks. <laughs> I mean, there's no like valets. There's these other things that are closed because of COVID, but it seems like there are plenty of opportunities To catch COVID, if you wanted to, like you can eat inside a restaurant here. Anyway, it's just it's just interesting how things differ. But uh, but on set, it's pretty safe. You know, take temperature, and uh, everyone wears masks, and you know we eat far away from each other, and there's no like buffet style with food but which is maybe an upgrade
1: yeah it's more expensive which is a bummer but i I feel like you know you just get your box lunch and you have a little bit of space so it's a bad
0: well so something that's like kind of interesting about this shoot that i thought was worth discussing for like two minutes at most so we're shooting four spots over the course of three days and then these like four other Kind of digital explainer spots that kind of go with the main spots. It's kind of a lot of, and it's
1: like industrial. No, kind
0: of. more like for Instagram. They're like how to. It's for a product. Oh, okay, gotcha. I yeah, yeah, yeah. I can say it's like for a, a paint product, and so the commercials are more. There are these fifteen-second spots for the paint, but these other videos are how-to videos that kind of like show you how to do certain projects with the paint. But it's hard because we have to really do the projects, but paint takes time to dry. We have to do all these different things. And (laughs) anyway, to make a long story short, I'm not like exactly sure how we're going to shoot everything, like what we're going to do. I mean, I have a good idea. We have storyboards and all this stuff. But like, I know that this angle, like, you know, we can draw it in the storyboard, but I don't know that we'll really get it.
1: You know, yeah. You know what shots you want, but also the logistics of the project could override some of the... Yeah.
0: Like I want to
1: get shoot artistic yeah this shot
0: and then this shot but oh we can't because this paint wouldn't go here and the tape would go here and whatever but I guess I was kind of curious about your experience with like kind of going into a shoot especially a commercial shoot knowing 70% of what you're gonna do is it because I'm usually like pretty much at like 95% before I go into a shoot like knowing what the shots are what the order of the shots are and like how the frame is gonna look but Now I'm really, and I even told my DP who, you know, as a director, everyone's like, okay, so are you going to see this? Are you going to see this? Are you going to do this? And I'm like, always so scared to say, I don't know. Well, (laughs) but today I told the DP, I was like, just think of this as like, you know, here's our plan more or less. But like, if we see a better shot, we're going to take the better shot. If this angle feels weird, we're going to do a different angle. And let's just kind of like approach this like, (laughs) I told our cinematographer to think of it as like a sawhorse shoot, which our friends, we have a production company, sawhorse. A lot of times they'll be like, hey, tomorrow we got to shoot this person doing this thing. And then you just show up and figure out how to shoot it. And, you know, you don't usually do that with commercials unless they're kind of like lifestyle commercials. But um, even when they are lifestyle commercials. So, I don't know, I guess have you gone into commercial shoots kind of like 70% (laughs) knowing what you're going to shoot?
1: Yeah, the answer is certainly... It's been kind of a while. I think that you and I both have progressed to the point where the expectation is that you walk somebody through literally every single frame, like, you know, everything's boarded and this and that. My college humor days when we were doing stuff with like Jake and Amir in particular, where they're more sketch comedy, chemistry It was sketch comedy, but also like a lot of improv you know, like a lot of improv and you would light things globally and you just kind of catch things and you had soft beat sheets, but yeah, so you weren't sure how things were going to go, but also they didn't need to be cut to a specific time. And then also actually you're reminding me that I, I did some like Dunkin' Donuts videos like a couple years ago. Now we had to do like some like tabletopy, um, like top down sort of like, magical quote-unquote Facebook-style videos, basically. of Like, this is how you make Dunkin' Donuts into, like, a cake or something like that. And, you know, and you'd see, like, you know, a pair of – a set of hands would, like, put a bowl down and then, like, butter would appear and then, you know, they'd stir the butter and, you know, like, that sort of very, like, top-down Facebook-style stuff. But we only had so many of these special edition Dunkin' Donuts – and so you kind of had to make it in real time. Like and we had a chef there. The and PA is in the corner. You're like, oh, how many donuts did you eat? <laughs> huh? what, what? No, no. They were they were huh? like oh, peppermint type or something. And they, they basically, they just had, we were doing it early enough in the run that they hadn't really manufactured enough of the materials that the chef needed to assemble things. So it was like, it was something where it was like, we had a, it's been years now, so I'm, I'm fuzzy on the details but it was like regular dunkin donuts but then you would combine them with a, a certain type of frosting or whatever that they didn't have a ton of but so yeah so you had to do them in real time which is similar to painting so the ideal way to do it for people listening at home as i'm sure you can guess is like to have an art team kind of doing stages of the of the process basically so you get things you kind of figure out what what are the benchmarks and you have a couple that are further along so that you can kind of swap things out and redo things as you go. And so there's one or two that you're actually doing in real time, but that there are a couple others that are, that maybe start out in different stages. And then also the, there are people standing by to actually catch up. So, like once you've done the first couple stages, if there are, you know, th- you have three whatever birdhouses in various stages that you can kind of have people building them along. Once you no longer le- need the earlier stages, for instance. But is it with talent? What are the what's what are the mandates from the the team? Also, you know, when you said four spots in three days, I was like, ooh la la, Oren. I had no idea. This is great. But then adding four explainer videos on top of that that could be very art dependent, it gets a little hairier. Yeah. We
0: also, like, we're painting these things and they're real vintage things that we got, like, on eBay and stuff. And, like, these old items and we only have two of each thing that we had to very carefully source so we have a finished version and an unfinished version which means we only get one take to to like if we're painting something we only get one take to paint it because we only have one of them
1: is it spray and this paint is or a 15 is it,
0: second it's, or is it yeah, like spray paint and it is a 15 second Spot with a two-second end card, so we have thirteen seconds for the whole thing.
1: So, so you, but um, you hold on. I just want to make sure I'm clear here. Let's say it's a birdhouse. You got a vintage birdhouse that's all messed up. It's rusty, and you know you need to fix it or whatever. And then you have one that's a hundred percent done.
0: Because the reality is, if you wanted to paint it as perfectly as we want it to be painted at the end, that you have bird to take house your time. would take yeah. would take like a day. An entire data yeah. paint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we need to shoot three of these how-to videos in the right light with the right thing with all the like, approvals and everything in that day. So we had to have like the finished one. We also are shooting some things kind of out of order and we basically needed the finished one and a totally unfinished one both. And today we were like, oh man, we wish we had like five <laughs> five copies of each thing. So we can have it at different stages, just like you're saying, just like those donuts. It's going to totally be fine, but it's, It's,
1: you know, yeah, that's exactly right. Like, it's more that it just creates some stress and rigidity in your schedule that you know how to work around if you had another couple birdhouses. That's all. How many cameras are you using? It also
0: changes your approach a little bit. Yeah. And that, that, like, instead of, like, this is going to be this precise movement and this precise and it's going to cut on this, you know. It's a little bit more like this is the idea. We're gonna do a dynamic camera movement. I don't know. I'm not gonna know what it is until you see it and then you can give a note on it,
1: you know. How many cameras?
0: One for like the commercial and then we're throwing a second one, the how to videos. And I brought my Sony A7S, you know, just in case. Made a...
1: No GoPro though, no like time lapsey or like no. bug's eye view or anything. Well, the like That wouldn't w- match the There would I guess. be like an overhead
0: Uh angle you know
1: kind of like your donut thing
0: um but we're not sure which camera yet and you know it's interesting because like in those situations i'm sure you've been in them it's like you're actually negotiating more with your cinematographer than you are with like the agency and the client or the producer because your cinematographer when you're like oh i got my sony a7s here and we got a red camera like can we throw those in And he's like well those aren't going to match we have like an alexa with master primes like and now you're going to cut it with this like dslr like this isn't going to look good. And you're like, yeah, but this spot is not about looking good. It's about kind of like this fun how to video, you know? (laughs) So not that it won't look good, but it's like, it's not like a broadcast TV spot, you know?
1: Yeah. I think that's kind of why I like GoPro because they feel so different. It's like self.
0: Yeah. It's almost like (laughs) self-aware.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah, Like it's not supposed to blend, you know, it's like surveillance camera footage or something. Like we know it's a different thing. And we, as an audience, are familiar with what cell phone footage looks like and GoPro footage looks like. Yes,
0: we've all heard Jordan Brady's story about how he shot a security footage of that Kool-Aid commercial, or <laughs> whenever it was, with a real security camera.
1: Oh, I haven't heard that story. That's good, though.
0: Anyhow, we should probably let Fisher Stevens speak a little bit. Before we do, though, I do want to remind people that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. It is a place where if you wanted to give us a couple dollars a month, because you feel like you get something onto the podcast, and you feel like it's helping you, you're short, just got into Sundance or Slam Dance or Neighbor's Yard Dance, you know, just drop us a couple bucks, you know, you'll get some stickers, uh, $10, you'll get a hat, $20, you'll get a t shirt. And I think we're going to have some more Patreon uh, remote events. Man, I cannot wait till we are all herd immunized. Exactly. We cannot are just all having had COVID.
1: I'm we ready, ready for that live vaccine. shows. Yeah.
0: They're kind of like one of the highlights of the podcast for
1: me. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty great. So we'll be there soon. Uh, in the meantime, though, the online events have been really fun as well. So we'll have a few more of those in the near future as well.
0: Yeah. And so patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. And let's talk to Fisher. Congrats on the movie convention. Hey, folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those
1: risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes episodes, basically anything you can watch on big, media or phone-sized screens.
0: Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting
1: in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF to save 50 bucks.
0: And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U S that's just shoot it 50 off. Check them out. Let us know how it goes. That's on Palmer. How's it going so
2: much? It's going well. Yeah. I mean, it's exciting. You know, it's like giving birth to your baby. That's finally going to see the world. Something I've, Really ner- You know, you get nervous before the opening when the reviews come out and my, uh, my wife is like, don't even read them, you know, and I'm like, I know. And then, of course, I try not to read them, but it can't help it.
0: Do you, I wonder, do you read like the little blurb, like, you know, on Variety and stuff, they'll just have like one sentence at the top that, that hints at whether they like it or not. Do you? Read that and that tells you whether you read the rest of the
2: movie. Uh, yeah, I guess, sadly. I mean, I, I, this one's going to be weird. I'm, I'm, I, I just, you know, the thing that's different about this movie is that there's no box office. So you can't judge by box office. And as you know, often a movie will get terrible reviews, but it'll do great at the box office. And then the director will go on to make a million more movies so uh, this time there's no box office which is kind of good because it can't really fail at the box office but it can fail with the uh the reviews obviously so i i don't know i'm we were just talking my wife and i lexi about you know you you can't read them all don't do it don't do it to yourself you know just preparing myself so
0: anyway. i think it's fascinating to hear someone like you say that you know that the success of this movie kind of helps determine your next project and how many more movies you get to make because you have 40 producing credits including one oscar win (laughs) and you have 22 directing credits like it doesn't seem like a question mark whether you yeah uh, have a directing career i i you know
1: i think you maybe made it fisher you
2: know (laughs) well you know the thing is thank you though but uh I know doing these interviews just makes you realize like how old you are and how long you've been doing this. But my last movie definitely my last feature that I directed was a bit uh scarring in terms of the reception. So I uh that I'm guys? yeah, I'm prepared for anything.
1: I yeah. think it's interesting though that you're you're framing it in the world of streaming, right? Because as filmmakers, you're right. Like there there is that question of like what does success look like, right? especially like different platforms have different metrics have different standards for what success even is you know the numbers on a netflix have to be different than the numbers on an apple plus or an hbo max or whatever like it's all kind of this internal sort of rubric that they must each have you know and so
2: interesting i don't yeah and i have no idea what that is by the way but right
1: yeah they could be like hey you know we're a hit and you'd be like well what does what does that mean yeah you know (laughs) i'm curious though from a philosophical
0: standpoint like if you really compartmentalize your directing career from your acting career, because like you're, I'm like right now you're on these like hit shows, right? You're on the blacklist. You're on Succession. You're on Vice Principals. You're in the Night of, like just these like kind of
1: prestige you know, shows, yeah, prestige, that, yeah. Defined, you know,
0: shows that everyone knows that are win awards that do all this stuff. Do you separate that from your directing career? Because we look at someone like an Olivia Wilde or someone that has like this really amazing acting career and then makes her first movie and now has a directing career, and of course those two things are connected to each other.
2: Right. yeah we live on the same block, so I'm sure there's been some kind of energy <laughs> Ooh, good energy I'm a, hoping I get live on that I hope, I'm hoping your energy rubs off on yeah uh, on my career but um well, look, directing documentaries versus directing features versus directing versus acting it's all different like this film in particular, Palmer, was probably one of the most difficult things that I've ever done and and I want to say that whether or not it's a hit or it's critically acclaimed honestly it the reality is it doesn't matter it was an incredible experience I loved it it was tough but it it was when I take a job it's really especially as I get older it's all about the experience and This was a magical, incredible experience, even ups and downs, trying to get it made, not getting, you know, having it almost go at one point, then shutting down, then starting again, new cast, new everything. But regardless, all joking aside, it's been an incredible win because of just the making of it. Now, the second part, as you bring up, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, making features, I, I loved, I loved the experience of directing a feature. Uh, so I hope I have another opportunity to do it. But again, regardless of whatever happens, that Palmer itself was a great experience. And yeah, I, I could just go on and on about how much difficulty, but how much fun and how much love there is surrounding this film from everybody involved.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm curious to dig in a little bit more on that, because I think that You know, listeners at home, filmmakers themselves, we always love to hear about the struggle or the challenge or the or the under discussed parts of filmmaking. You know, was there something in particular that you found, you know, have this not being your first rodeo was a surprise challenge, maybe?
2: Yeah, I mean, just the fact that it wasn't my first rodeo and just how difficult it was to raise the money to make this film. Uh, to cast this film, look, it, we always knew it was a small movie, and I didn't. I, I wanted my next film to be a small film. I didn't want to have a big budget. I wanted the the other thing that was imperative. Unlike Stand Up Guys, which I really you know liked and had a good time, that wasn't my film. I didn't. I I was unable to choose my the my designer. I wanted my DP. I wanted. I was I was a hired gun, and there was a there was a guy above me, my producer financier, who kind of really ran the show. And, you know, I got to do a bunch of things I wanted. I obviously got to cast and work with the great actors, but that was not my ultimate vision of that film, I would say. It was more his vision with me helping. So yeah, my requirement on this film was that I get to make it my film. If it fails, it's on me. It's not on anyone else. So yes, that's difficult. I knew I had gonna have serious budget constraints. I still knew I needed to cast a leading man that people would wanna see. And I knew I had to find the perfect kid because without Palmer and Sam being amazing, this movie doesn't work. So there was all that, but it, it wasn't easy. Uh, I, I know a lot of people, I've been doing this a long time. I, I had a friend of mine who had recently sold his company that was very much kind of supportive of my career. And he had agreed to put up a certain amount of money for this movie that needed to be matched and the original production company basically uh said they would and they uh, you know whatever happens they couldn't find the money it was a different actor it wasn't even we hadn't even signed a deal we were like talking to someone but we were really full steam ahead at one point and i remember i had got i was i was just finishing up a documentary but i'd also or i was in the middle of shooting a documentary but i had always made an agreement that i would Go on hold to make Palmer, but I got offered a really good acting role, and I turned it down because I was in prep. And anyway, the bottom line is the whole thing went belly up, and I was so depressed and so bummed out. And I didn't give up. I knew I had to make this film, and thank God it fell apart because it fell apart. I was making this documentary with Leonardo DiCaprio and his manager. I I, I was so depressed. I said, "Could you could you read the script and help me cast this? I don't know who who I need help." I threw out some names and his manager, a woman who works with him, Jennifer, knew a lot of actors and she goes, Justin should play this part. And I was like, Justin, Justin Theroux, Just, Justin Timberlake. Justin I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, he's perfect. And I hadn't even thought of Justin Timberlake. And that was the transformative moment. Now, it wasn't like Justin read the script and said, yeah, let's shoot. No, Justin read the script, was very interested, happened to be just in the middle of a 16 month tour world tour of his concert so there was that i knew i had the guy wasn't even available for eight months but then that was good too because it gave justin and i time to know each other because i didn't know this guy and he had great notes he had great insights especially after talking to other actors i was like this guy gets it he's from the south he gets this guy he's a new dad you know like me we, we both had young sons we understood sam in so many ways anyway
0: can i inter- can that- i interrupt for a second yeah yeah to ask about that i think there's a there's this idea especially among new filmmakers when you're trying to cast you know a star that if you offer them a role that they've never played before you know like if because right justin plays kind of a guy that's been got out of prison he got into fights so he's kind of like like you said like it's not, against type, not, right? not yeah, yeah, against, yeah, type, against and type, very yeah. different than like his social network character, for instance, right? Um,
2: or Llewellyn Davis, or Alpha Dog, or anything else he's ever done.
0: Yeah. How much does that play into when you send him the script, and do you attach a letter? Do you set up a phone call? Like, how how do you pitch him on the project beyond just sending him the script?
2: Well, everything is subjective. I I had met Justin once before. I I actually was trying to direct or film a, a concert of Otis Redding's 50th anniversary of working of, sh- of doing a concert at the Whiskey a Go Go and I was trying to convince Justin to help me do a concert. <laughs> that was years before. So I I'd only met him once and it was for something completely different. And because of my relationship with Leonardo's management company, you know, so they they definitely were knew me. I'd done two films with Leo at this point. So they they put in a good word. So I I and I have, you know, done a bunch of things. So that helped. So I did write a very long letter to Justin with the script. So I sent him the script, got him the letter. And yes, he uh I guess it took him a couple of weeks, but he read it and he got back to me and I could tell he was interested. And you're right. Part of the reason that I did think he was like by by the way, the the money offer was basically non existent. There was no money in. It this movie but but the upside is you get to play a great part and and you take ownership you're my partner in this movie you know if it does well we all do well if it doesn't we don't but it's on us to make it as good as possible and he gets that he's done that many times so yeah and i think what attracted him to this was that he hadn't played this type of role that he he knew this guy eddie palmer he's from the south and it did take quite a bit of many meetings many phone calls Um, before he agreed. And then the last part of his agreement was, we can't start shooting till we have the kid. So and I was like, absolutely, absolutely. And I had a kid that I loved when I was up and running before when I thought I was. But by that point, that kid had grown too much. So we had to kind of restart.
0: That's the funniest thing about casting like young actors is it's like, Oh yeah, I have this amazing seven year old. By the time you get your movie off the ground, they're, they're
2: like, 12. Nice to meet got, you like, again, little Mr. Mustard. Stevens. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. The voice changes. And, yeah, this kid, the kid was taller than me.
0: It was incredible. No. <laughs> so writer Allen is who you ended up casting. This was his first feature film, right?
2: Well, I think it was his first time speaking on film. I mean, he, he had a, uh, a part in Law and Order playing one of the young Menendez brothers, no lines. Uh, and he did a commercial. That was it. But Ryder's sister uh, had done a lot of commercials and was on a lot of sets. And Ryder kind of went with her to auditions. And and he decided that he wanted to do this too. And that's how he got into it. And basically Justin gave me two days to read with with kids, with Sam's. And he said, like, a minimum six kids. I'll read with 30 if you have them, but I want at least six. And I had five kids, and the rider was in my kind of maybe pile. And because he was seven, he was younger than the other kids. He wasn't exactly physically what I had expected. I had originally a different sort of physical vision of this child. But we just threw him in at the last minute. And, and then, at this
0: point, all you've seen is tapes of them, right? Or have you actually met? All no, these I
2: kids? I read I read Ryder by this point, but the the finalists I had been in a room with all of them.
0: Because with kids, you kind of need to see not just them on camera, but their relationship with their parents, like how like sometimes you have amazing kids that are amazing for like five minutes, and by minute six, they are just bouncing off the walls, and you just you can't. It's hard to shoot with them because you have to take so many breaks, like refocusing them and things like that. Well, it's hard to like cast you them said off tape too.
2: I mean people don't understand you're not just casting the kids you're casting their parents too because their parents play a huge role in the entire relationship you have with with
1: the kid yeah it's a partnership with them as well right like if you can get those parents on on your side can you work with them you know is is there you're auditioning them in a sense as well it's like getting a techno crane without an operator yeah, kind of get this. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. But... He had the coolest parents. Uh, at the time, I had just met his mother, but it was very clear the mother had been used to this with her daughter and was incredible and incredibly supportive. Because it's tough material. I mean, it's really tough material. And Ryder just I have to say, when I read, because I I read with all the kids first. You know, I mean, I read with a hundred kids and. When I read with Ryder, he was good, but there wasn't that kind of, I, I still didn't see it necessarily, but I, I saw enough in him that I thought let's throw this guy in because he's seven. We'll have less time working on the set. I hope we don't cast him because he's too young. And as soon as Justin, I'm not, I don't think Ryder knew who Justin was at, you know, Justin Dimmerlake, but as soon as they read together, it was like very clear that these two actors had incredible chemistry. And that was what was so interesting, was seeing Justin with these other kids. And it was just, wow, that was it. We knew. Justin was looking at me like, as we're at, I'll remember the reading and he's like the first scene and he's, we started and then he's just, just looking at me like, like almost in shock. And how good this kid was.
0: Well, let me ask you a kind of technical acting question. So in the over the course of the movie, Justin Timberlake starts very apprehensive. He's not interested in taking care of a kid. And, you know, by the end of the movie, their connection is quite strong. Do you feel like you need to shoot that type of relationship in order when you're in production in order to kind of track that, especially for a seven-year-old? Or is that not really something you, you're worrying about? Well, if I had a big budget, I would definitely want to do that. There's no question. But there was no
2: way we could do that. So what we did, and this is why having Justin and as a collaborating partner and, and Ryder is so good is because they spend so much time with me rehearsing and going. Gl- we charted it we charted the entire film before we started shooting. Really for that exact reason. I mean, Ryder really had to understand emotionally what was going on because there were days where we would shoot one day we'd have to go to three different days inside the script days you know three different scenes that took place different just because of the nature of a 25-day shoot having a boy seven hours only or six hours to shoot so we were just like run and gun however he was so prepared and thank goodness he had an acting coach that uh, was supposed to only come for the first week and we just I convinced the producers to pay for her to stay the whole time and she was so helpful and she was willing to do it So she really helped me because I had so much going on with this movie that uh, she helped me and Ryder understand, you know, but, but Ryder was super prepared, but that's a great question because we needed him to know where he was at all times before and after each scene. That was another thing that was great about working with them. and, And one thing that I always have to do as an actor is know where I'm coming from and where I'm going in each scene and where it's coming out of. So we stress that quite a bit in uh, in shooting and in rehearsal.
1: Are there any other aspects of prep specifically with Ryder that was helpful in some way? You know, b- besides charting. You know, how I guess how do you prepare a seven year old who's never I done mean, a feature before? Yeah, I mean, and also, and- it, it, sorry to interrupt, but I just want for our
0: listeners and for Matt, you know, the people who have not seen the movie. I just want to stress that. You mentioned this already, Fisher, but the the role is challenging. He's—I don't know how you describe the character, but he's a seven-year-old boy that seems, you know, to prefer wearing dresses and princess outfits. And he lives in the South in this very kind of like macho society. And he's bullied at school, and his best friend is a girl. But even the adults are kind of, you know, laugh at him. And so it's 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 a for an adult, it's a difficult role for a seven-year-old to even understand the nuance. Part of me was wondering if the actor did understand the nuance or if it's better that he doesn't because the character doesn't really seem to understand the nuance. Like, the character is not not worried about that. And you're forgetting he had to have a Southern accent. Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean and he had to wear crazy clothes. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> so, Ryder is super intelligent. Um, and I think he understood what was going on, certainly. The bullying and all that. He... he there are two scenes in the movie where actually two scenes where he had to break down. And then there's a third scene where he actually wasn't even needed to and didn't even, wasn't scripted, but he started crying. I mean, it's one of the great moments in the movie too. This boy just, I I was like, Oh my, I I lost it when he started crying. But anyway, so yeah, it's um, it's a hard thing. I, 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 we're dealing with very difficult subject matter for a seven year old, for an eight year old, for not for anybody for that matter. And his parents were just super cool. I think his dad was a bit hesitant about him doing the role at the beginning, he said. Just was worried, would Ryder A be able to carry it and be like, it's a little too mature, possibly, for, for
0: him. Well, imagine being... A, I mean, you have kids now, right? Imagine yeah. saying, like, oh, I'm going to have my kid be bullied on camera in these scenes um, for everyone to see. It's it's probably stressful. I have a daughter. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. It, you have to probably prepare yourself emotionally as a parent to even though it's obviously all staged and it's not real, but it feels real. Right. And that's what makes the movie good. Yeah. It, it's a trip, man. I, I don't, it's, I look at it as
2: an actor. I I had a lot of fun rehearsing with him and, you know, I, I, uh, one of my joys of directing is that I can play the scenes with, with everyone in rehearsal when, you know, if Justin is, getting a costume fitting or doing it, whatever, I would always step in to just run it and run it and run it. We 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 did a lot of working on these scenes, Ryder and, and I, with with his coach. His mom was great. That's the thing, the parents have to kind of work the kids before before work and make sure that they know what they're doing. And and Amy and, Amy But that that they're incredible. not
1: undoing your work. Do you know And what I mean? they're not
2: undoing your work, which right. is like which exactly which is what we started the conversation about how important parents are and Um, that the
0: performance is still malleable because a lot of times you'll see kids they give a great first take and you try to change it but they've rehearsed this way of doing it a thousand times that they can't break out of it
2: yeah i mean i had one kid whose mother sat in the back and was kind of sort of directing him um at the audition and i knew that wasn't gonna work anyway yeah yeah we got we got really this this boy is special and uh god i I really
0: uh, hope I can see him soon. So I've worked with kids a little bit, but I saw this behind the scenes footage of Steven Spielberg working on E.T. and directing, you know, the kids in there. And it seemed like part of his method was really to like match the energy of the scene. And he he seems like a kid when he's behind the camera. It's like, oh, that's, you know, that's so cool. Like pick that up. Oh, it's scary. Oh yeah. Okay. You're care. You know, like, is that the energy matching? Is that, do you do that at all when you're working with kids? You know it's less intellectual wow. more you know
2: you know i i never thought of that uh but yeah for sure i would do that i wish i knew steven spielberg better uh but i did one of one of my one of my inspirations for this film was paper moon and i do know the director peter bogdanovich so i did call him to get advice about directing kids because he To me, one of the greatest kid performances, other than Spielberg being so successful. Peter Bogdanovich directing Tatum O'Neill in Paper Moon was a masterpiece, I thought. And uh, I called him and asked him for his advice.
1: What um, what did he say? what he
2: did with Tatum. He said that he, uh, and and I took his advice, but I also did what you said uh, just naturally. But he said that uh, he would get down on her level always, only directed her at her level, eye level, and treat her like an adult. And just treat her like another one of the actors, and never let her get insecure. But at the same time, never baby her. Um, keep the confidence, but at the same time, make them understand that this is not—you you, know—they're as good uh, as anyone else, and they're—they're—they're they're, they're proper actors. Ryder was perfect for that, and he got that. But for sure, I would match the energy. I mean there's moments I'm screaming like the scene or I'm, you know, oh yeah, tons of that. I did exactly that. You can't help it with these kids. I mean, Spielberg did it, but I'm sure it's because he he felt the energy of the scene is exactly right.
0: I kind of feel like as a director, it's your job, but even if the crew, you know, the grips are all just like looking at their phones or everyone's like not that interested, it's your job to be like, this is the most important thing going on in your life right now. You know, what is behind that door? What is there? Like, I'm sure it's fun directing bullies too. Like,
2: look at him that was tough that that boy uh that boy I, I cast the sweetest kid to be the bully and that was tough he had a lot of trouble getting there <laughs> and then he did and he got it he did a take that was so good and he you know he pushed Ryder, and, he, and then he he felt so bad
1: sure yeah
2: and he yeah you know, he's he was eight years old you know eight year old eight years old yeah amazing
1: you know at, at that age also like the the boundaries between make believe and real life are still flexible. They're still permeable. So, so it makes sense that you're getting these incredible performances, but that, that level of vulnerability, you know, it's hard for them to not take things personally. You know, did you ever find that like you were worried about crossing any sort of like emotional lines in terms of like how real things felt?
2: Yeah. With Ryder, I mean, you know, uh, there are moments where I got uh, he started getting emotional and he couldn't stop crying and it was a take where he couldn't stop crying and which was just like, oh my god he feels this boy feels it so deeply and I felt oh my god, what have I done but he's so mature that he got back but there there is a scene in the movie which uh, is a kind of the climactic scene where he couldn't stop crying And what's so funny is when we when we shot the last day and we rapped, it was such a powerful experience for him. He couldn't, he he just started weeping of of missing us and missing this experience.
0: I wanted to take two, I want to mention two things real quick for people that are listening. One is I know we're talking a lot about crying and emotional stuff and bullying, but like the movie is actually quite bright and positive and fun and flows. And it's not like if you're deciding what movie to watch, don't take us talking about all the crying. It's like that. This is a downer. It's like a, a quite inspiring, like kind of uplifting movie. Um, So I I just want to put that out there to our listeners, but
2: you will, but you will cry.
0: You will. Yeah. It's moving for sure. But it's not like watching, like, it's not like, let's put it on Schindler's list. You know, it's, it's, I enjoyed watching it. You know, like I wasn't just like bummed (laughs) the whole time. Um, Good. No, no, no. The other, but I think the takeaway, especially for newer filmmakers, and I'm curious, actually, Matt, like your experience with this too, but the, I, I directed some things for Nickelodeon a few years ago and They had acting coaches for the kids and it was just like part of their standard thing. They're like, we always kind of have these acting coaches on set for the kids. And they were, I mean, the kids were amazing. You know, those like all those Disney Nickelodeon kids, they're they're crazy. They're like robots. You like put 25 cents in and they knew the whole scene like incredibly well. But when I kind of was starting and like making YouTube videos and sketch videos and indie stuff, I never realized that. There's that you could bring an acting coach. I thought it was like would make me a bad director if I have an acting coach on there. Um, But I just want to say that just tell kind of some of the newer filmmakers that this is a role that does exist on set, and it if you're nervous about directing kids, like there's no harm in bringing someone else to help you, especially with that with that part. So you know, Matt's yeah, you just have to
2: draw. You just have to draw boundaries, right? And and also, you know, I would have preferred obviously to have had more time with Ryder. But when you're doing a film in 25 days and you only have six hours a day, and she is amazing. Lori Lively is her name, uh, acting coach for kids. She's incredible. Oh my God. So we, you know, and I would meet with her and discuss with her what I needed, you know? And I would rehearse with Ryder and she would watch and I would say, Lori, can you keep working in this direction? And, you know, we, she was amazing.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like any other part of filmmaking, right? You, you set up kind of the direction you want it to go, but then you can multitask while someone else is helping you. with Right.
2: That. And she was from the South, which was great. So we could always work on Ryder's accent and Justin helped him with the accent because Justin's from the South. So
1: Yeah. I think it's interesting. I, I think kind of to the point we were making before about just making sure that you have the same methodology. Right. And it sounds like Fisher, that's exactly right for you. But that you speak the same language, so to speak, you know. I'm
0: curious, you've worked with, like, obviously a a zillion great directors. How do you, as an actor, do you pay attention on set to, like, where the lights are, what the schedule, like, how much are you pulling as an actor to bring into your directing, especially your scripted stuff?
2: It depends, you know. Sometimes I'm just so relieved that I don't have to deal with anything but my lines. It's like, oh, thank God, I don't have to worry about making the day or where the lights go. I don't have to talk to the producers about budget. Oh, it's so wonderful. But I have to say, being on Succession was a different situation because I was so enamored with the way it was being shot and the actors. That that inspired me for Palmer, because I went right from working on that to going into the actual production. Um, so watching the way there's a director that I'm absolutely like, I think is brilliant on succession. Who's the main, I guess the main director named Mark Milad. And I just love these British, but he's done a lot of TV and a few movies, but I just love watching him work. And I love the way he communicates with the actors. And I love the way he communicates with the camera people. And I really noticed that uh, while I was on the show, uh, I I'd say I took, I took a lot. I took a lot from that. Um, and that show shoots with, with, Film and always with two cameras. Sometimes both cameras, and I's and eyebrows had... just
1: bounced when that you said
2: film because it's like wild. such
0: a yeah. Especially the pilot was kind of like zoomy. There's there's a little kind of docu mm-hmm. feel to it, which I guess I associate with. with video, but I don't know why I would Yeah, yeah, no, that's shot uh, with with film. Can you tell us some of the specifics of like the takeaways of, like what you took away about communicating with actors and communicating with your camera crew that you picked up on Succession? Yeah,
2: well, I mean, first of all, I hired like an amazing DP, Tobias Schleisler, who uh, I had shot for me on And We Go Green, one of my documentaries uh, about electric car racing. And I could tell this guy who's done like, you know, hundred million dollar movies was really into getting the camera back on his shoulder. And he happened to had a movie fall apart right before I was starting to film. And I begged him to do this for, you know, and he's told me he's had lighting budgets bigger than our whole budget.
1: Don't you love it when somebody says that to you? Well, he didn't say it to <laughs> me, by the way. Uh, I overheard oh, him good. yelling at the, produ- you know, talking <laughs> sure, to the sure.
2: producer because he was trying to get a light. Uh, but anyway, it wasn't like he said no, that no, to no, me, but, saying, um, <laughs> but, but still like, like my experience with two cameras is very, I have a lot of experience doing documentary work, but succession is all about basically you stage the scene, you shoot the whole scene with one lighting set up and then you go around and you change the light a little bit, but you basically keep doing the scene over and over as a full scene, which is so fun for the actors and so refreshing. Um and, and you don't do that on TV often. You know, you do you're you know, it's it's pick it up from here, pick it up. So I I brought that into Palmer for sure. Where with Tobias and you know we couldn't sh- afford film, but we found these K35 lenses, these old 70s lenses that look beautiful, that Ridley Scott had actually used for Blade Runner, and we uh, so I, I we had this great kind of flow going and kind of this outline of how we were going to work, and I I think Succession you know it does the same thing, which is great, which is why it's like you sh- you you feel like you're in a theater company because you're just doing it over and over and over again and it's so it's wonderful as the actor uh because you get many shots at it and i tried to do that on a lower budget scale with justin and sam and Ryder, and and i think we all felt like i think it was a really good experience for the actors as well can i I ask
1: ask a technical question about that um because you mentioned that your your dp you know he was operating it sounds like
2: well no he wasn't fully operating because he wasn't uh yeah whatever but he 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 did sometimes. he was getting his hands I, dirty I, I, in a different way than he
1: used to for, yeah, sure, yeah. Gotcha. for sure for but sure but so he could keep an eye on both cameras at the same time, like you yeah
2: that's why he couldn't yeah. operate fully um and 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 again, the beauty of palmer uh making this film unlike my other films that I directed was like it was me and Tobias by the monitor that was it, you know these producers were wonderful they were maybe at another monitor and they were wonderful they they were but basically it was me and Tobias and, and, you know, it was a very much a lo- small, small footprint. We wanted to keep a small footprint. So, um, but, but, but some uh, often Tobias, you know, would grab the camera and have to jump in. Yeah.
0: My dream is always to like do those, like, you know, let's just run the whole scene. Let's run the whole scene. And then the low budgets that I work in, like, you know, the blocking starts becoming really d- you want people to move around and do things, but well, they can't walk here because, you know, we're not lit for that. And we're not lit for this. And, but yeah, I guess on a show like Succession, you kind of light these giant spaces and you get to, to do that.
2: Well, we try to do that with Tobias and, and the beauty of the K35 lenses in the Sony Venice camera is you can shoot with less light, you know, although he's still brilliant, had to light, but we, we, it you know. It's amazing what you can do when you have to.
0: And how do you guys plan the movie? Do you, are you like a shot list or storyboard or how do you, do you need to see locations first and act things out?
2: Oh yeah. Locations are crucial. I, I look at locations as characters always. Like there's a big part of this movie and hopefully you don't even notice it, but the locations are a huge part of this movie because we wanted it to be authentic and you know, you just wanted everything to blend in so that you're just like real life watching. Watching real life. so color palette was huge locations were huge. we I, I only uh, I would shot list every day but I would only storyboard the the fight the fight scene and the big ending. Um, I only storyboarded those. Essential the storyboard fight scenes, I think, and essential that the big ending kind of scene. Uh, I had, I had one night to shoot like a huge, I mean, it was impossible. I don't know how we did it, but it worked out. But we, I storyboarded every frame of that and then let it go and then shot it like a dock. But I knew I see I had the script and then I could throw it away. I got the script, but then I gave me room to get even better to do more.
1: Yeah. Well, and when you're running full scenes like that, you can become a little opportunistic, right? Like you've got your shot list, but one of your cameras maybe already is covered, you know, is covering a piece already. So like your operator gets to maybe like riff a little bit, which is always it's important. It, yeah. yeah.
2: I I I still I'm not going to say where, but there's this one moment I still didn't feel like covered correctly. It was a cutaway in that in a big C. But anyway, I, I always look at that. We eked it out in the edit, but I didn't get I never felt like I, it was something
0: where I just kind of dropped and we ran ran out of time. Did you guys do any pickups for the movie? No, oh, that's brutal. <laughs> when you're like, ah, oh, we <laughs> needed that one piece. It makes this whole scene work so much better.
2: Oh, it was incredible, man. It was, oh, well, wait, you mean pick, we, we did do, we did do, uh, two pickups inside of our shooting day, you know, like after, but like, it it wasn't like we went back and went back to the location after we finished shooting. And one of those pickups we never used, uh, I don't think we used either one to you the truth, but no, I mean, gosh, that's the other thing. Like we, you know, we finished shooting and that was the movie you know nowadays most people do pickups, but
1: we didn't well let me ask because it sounds like you know you've had such a, a a breadth of different experiences right like you can do big movies you can do small movies you can act and hit tv shows all of that stuff and now with palmer under your belt uh what size project do you want to do next what's what's the sweet spot have you found your favorite sort of level? Like, do you miss the creature comforts or is it worth it for the creative freedom?
2: Well, you know, you can talk to Tobias who does $100 million movies and he'll say, oh, we always have this similar, we always have problem, We never have enough time to shoot. We always, you know, the big difference is you stay in a nicer hotel, you drink more expensive bottles of wine after work and uh, you have a thousand extras. Otherwise, no, I I would like to have more than 25 days to shoot my next movie um, unless it's like in one room um i'd say the the biggest challenge for this was, was the the days especially since sam could only work six hours a day so that was i, I definitely don't want to do that again that was probably the, the the most difficult and and uh you know there were a couple of everybody was great but it would have been nice to been able to have flown in a few more people that i've worked with to be in key key positions but we couldn't you know and by the way people were amazing in louisiana there were great people there but you know, there's a couple like people I always work with that I would have felt comfortable you have a with. history in, with in,
1: people, right? Yeah.
2: Exactly. So it would be nice. I, I did get to hire, you know, my designers, which was amazing. And they were amazing. So, but I, I'd like to do something maybe with a little more bulk uh, in terms of budget. But maybe I, I would love to do a period piece uh, as a director. I'm not talking about Elizabethan or Victorian. I'm talking about maybe even 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think Palmer has kind of a little bit of that timeless quality too, and maybe it's because you're shooting in the South. Maybe, you know, there's that well that texture it was also, of wood and nature and stuff.
2: Yeah, Small exactly. Town. I mean, that was very deliberate. That was very like all of my influences for Palmer were older films. You know, all the films that I watched were, uh, and also uh, those are the films I love. You know, and Justin and I, we watched. You know, we got really deep into Paul Newman in his twenties, thirties, and forties, and Steve McQueen, and you know those kind of films. Fat City, Stacy Keach. I mean, we 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 went. You know, that that was one of my favorite inspirations for this movie. And documentaries, oh, but old documentaries. I,
1: yeah, I would. I do wonder though, just in in the production of the film, how a a film about with the with the themes of unity, right? You know, the idea of unity is something that everyone can get behind, right? Um, once you kind of go a layer or two deeper, do you find that that in talking about the film and, and kind of introducing yourself to that world, that that was a part of the conversation? Or was it a little more, you know, business? You
2: mean, was that part of the conversation when I needed a church as a location? Yeah, yeah.
1: Or, uh, some yeah, lo- it's a great for instance. Oh, for yeah.
2: sure. Oh, no, no. Uh, uh, for sure. part. Of- I mean, there were there to be honest. There was a couple of locations that uh, we wanted to use. One in particular, where they asked to read the script, and we gave them the script, and they said, "No, I don't. I don't want you shooting here." But then there were a lot of the others, like the church, read the script, and they were like, "All for it." You know, it's a beautiful story. That's
0: What I loved, really loved about the movie, obviously great performances, but I did like how underplayed that was, and how the people didn't seem like here's a southerner that thinks one way, and here's a you know, person, here's a bad guy and here's a good guy. Like, even the bad guys kind of felt bad for doing bad things and the good guys felt bad for doing good things. You know, that there's a lot of that gray area of like, it's not just like a you, a us versus them. And, you know, Justin's whole character is like, you know, he's like a kind of roughneck Southerner that's just got out of prison and he can sympathize with a kid that, you know, maybe a lot of people. Would not accept exactly.
2: I like that about the script, and even even writer uh, Sam's mother. You know, she's a disaster, crystal meth addict, and leaves the boy for weeks at a time. But at the same time, she always supported who he was. She allowed him to be who he was. She gave him confidence. She gave him self esteem to let him be who he was. So uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of that I think in the in the story. Hopefully,
0: awesome. Well, thanks so much. Um, if people want to find out more about Palmer, I think it comes out January 29th, right? Um, on Apple?
2: Yeah, January 29th on Apple Plus and uh, playing about 30, 25 to 30 movie theaters. Uh, socially distanced,
0: yeah. Are you cool with hanging out with us just for a couple more minutes to, for our unpaid endorsement segment?
2: Oh, sure, sure, sure.
1: Unpaid endorsements. So my unpaid endorsement is uh, the the film Sound of Metal. The Sound of Metal. Uh, I caught it just recently. I really loved it. It's a little unassuming at first. Like, I think I love a film that kind of goes through three very clearly different phases, you know, like you start in one world and by the end of the film, you had no idea where you were headed, you know, but uh, I think it's a really incredibly acted. I mean, everyone's talking about uh, Riz Ahmed as like, you know, uh, Oscar worthy sort of performance. But um, I, I guess I just hadn't It wasn't really on my radar and I wasn't totally sure that it would be my thing. And I just uh, was surprised by how much I loved it, basically. And I think that I mean, you are a metal head. Yeah. You know, well, it's so funny. I don't mind metal. But my sister-in-law didn't want to watch it because she thought it was about like heavy metal and and like, you know, immediately it's it's about an experience, basically. You know, you spend like maybe 10, 15 minutes in the metal scene and then you were in a different planet. In a way that's really great. And he's losing his hearing, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. He's a a drummer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, and also what they do with sound and, um, how they, the, the sound design and the, just the subjective camera makes you really get inside the head of the character and kind of watch his transformation and feel as though you're a part of that journey in a way that's really incredible. And I think, you know, maybe is a, uh, kind of an interesting doubleheader with Palmer actually. I think there's there's probably some some uh, similarities there.
0: Or a triple header. I've heard,
2: I want to see it. Well, oh, what's oh, a triple sh- header?
0: Well, <laughs> this is definitely a, a shameless plug, but, but there have been a few lists where they where people have said if you liked Sound of Metal, you might like these other movies. And one of them happens to be a movie I directed called The Hammer, which is about a deaf UFC fighter named Matt Hamill. It's a true story. Um, but we also play a lot with sound and sign language and um, trying to visualize and find the soundscape of, you know, the the senses of what it is to be deaf or or hard of hearing. So, well, Fisher, what do you got?
2: So... I uh, I was just thinking that I think the world would be a better place if everybody had a green juice every morning.
0: Do you juice yourself?
2: Well, here's the problem, man. They're expensive. I got a juicer and and I went, you know, you get the, ve- it's incredible how much, how many vegetables it takes to get a glass of juice. It's kind of a bummer. But It's amazing how good you feel after you drink it.
1: Yeah, 100%. What's your... uh, I don't know. That sounds so like white privilege. No, I love it though. I love it. I think your point is you are (laughs) like blown away by how much... You're like, oh, I put like a whole bushel of I just can't believe how... Kale, yeah.
2: But also how good I feel after I have one. Like that's what I'm... I want to know the People have been telling me for
1: years. What's your your cocktail?
2: It's kale, spinach, uh, a little celery, cucumber, apple, Blueberry and, and kiwi is Ooh, blueberry. Ideal.
0: Interesting move.
2: Yeah, I, I put blueberry in. I, I don't know. I, I was just trying to get away from movies because I've been talking movies since. Yeah, no, 10 a.m. that's this great. Morning.
0: Do you guys drink like a lot of water first thing when you wake up?
2: I drink every morning. I drink a sixteen-ounce glass of water, and I put either half or a full. Lemonade. I've heard
0: successful people like drink a lot of water in the morning, and I've had this like kind of revelation recently. Mike Berbiglia tweeted, just asking people how many cups of coffee they drink a day, and there was just you know ten thousand people responded. And I, I drink two cups a day, and a lot of people were mentioning that for every cup of coffee you drink, you you need to drink a cup of water just to offset that cup of coffee because of how much it dehydrates Shit. you. And I'm like, maybe oh that's God. why I'm getting migraine. in trouble because I drink some a little bit of water. Yeah. Then I drink two coffees with barely any water and then I get a crazy headache. And it's because I'm I think it's because I'm dehydrated. So I think the green juice might offset that, too. My endorsement is this YouTube channel, which is actually uh, it's called Wandering DP. So he has a podcast. I'd heard of it. A lot of people talk about it. But his YouTube channel, he, he's a cinematographer. He does mostly commercials. Just super great speaker, and he's pretty funny too. He kind of like reminds me of Andrew Kramer. For those of you that don't know, is like the VFX master that taught a whole generation of kids how to do visual effects. But Wandering DP, I think his name is Patrick O'Sullivan. He never mentions his name. He never plugs himself for work, but he takes beautifully shot commercials, like multi-million dollar commercials from all over the world. He brings them into DaVinci Resolve, and he just plays them. He looks at the levels, the light levels, and he just talks about how every shot was lit. He says, look at here. You know, we have the sun coming in from here. Look, this is beautiful. And we cut to the reverse. And why are we doing the reverse from here? Because we know that the light is sitting right here. And why are we doing this? And he, he's talking about lighting, but he's also in the process talking about directing, talking about blocking, talking about where an actor's eyeline should be. He talks about production designs like wallpaper. We like, we, Maybe we can shoot in Eastern Europe. Maybe we'll get some wallpaper here. We don't have wallpaper, so we're going to make this white wall look darker. We're going to put this square on there. We're going to do the Rembrandt. Look at that. There, and its I could just watch him all day, and he literally, even though I, I, I'm i a pretty technical person, I like cameras, and I feel like I understand things, he makes me ask my DP more questions. Like, well, what if we just did like a 12-by-bounce here? What if the sun was just over here? And what if we change this angle? It's just like I've just fallen in love with his with just watching him watch commercials and talk about how they were shot wandering DP he's on YouTube. And even I even bought um, even though I'm, you know, just have like I I don't have a ton of room, but I bought like a, an eight by frame and some grid and some muslin and some silks and a six by frame. Cause I literally just want to try out what the lighting, cause you know, he's like, he'll show Cindy Crawford from a Pepsi commercial. He's like, look, this is how they do it. Sun here, bounce above diffusion here. Um and I'm like, "Oh, I can buy like, you know, I I can set that up and I'll take my wife out there and let's see if we can get the same look." I've I've had a real DIY type of year Fisher um where I I bought a camera and I bought some other gear cuz I want to I want to go back to just making things on my own without having to have a crew. And so Um, This is is part of my evolution.
2: Time to do it, man. Time to do it. Isolation, quarantine.
0: Awesome. Fisher, thank you so much. Thanks, Fisher Stevens, for joining us. Uh, It was great chatting with you. Uh, You heard if you want to check out Palmer, it's on Apple Plus, January 29th. If you want to find out more about anything we talked about, please email us at justshootapod at gmail.com. You can check out what we talked about, all the notes, all the endorsements, everything at com, Our website. You can find us on all social media at Just Shoot it Pod. I'm on Instagram, at O. Kaplan, and on Twitter, at
1: Pileg And I'm at Mr. Matt Enloe, across all social media, including Letterboxd. I've seen some people following me. Ooh, thinking. lucky. By the way, yeah, I'm, that's a, right. I'm on TikTok, too, if you know, at Pileg Oh, oh, look out. Because at o just, was taken. What is going on? We're social butterflies. Uh, anyway, uh, this episode was edited by Sarah Weirda, and our social media manager is Derek Aiello. You're listening to music provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.